forthcoming on the Agony Column podcast. In his new book, roboticist Daniel H. Wilson asks, where's my jetpack? If you're the only guy in the world with a jetpack, that's pretty cool, but it just totally falls apart as soon as everybody gets one. But when you get your jetpack, how long can you fly? A lot of times these things fail to scale. You know, here you go. You can have your dream of flight. 30 seconds. <laughs> that's all you get. This promo will last 30 seconds. Don't fail to scale. Next on the Agony Column podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. The future is now, and we are not impressed. The future was supposed to be a fully automated, atomic-powered, germ-free utopia, a place where a grown man could wear a velvet spandex unitard and not be laughed at. Our beloved scientists may be building the future, but some key pieces are missing. Where are the ray guns, the flying cars, and the hoverboards that we expected? We can't wait another minute for the future to arrive. The time has come to hold the golden age of science fiction accountable for its fantastic promises. At the turn of the 19th century, visionaries like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells spun wild tales of spaceflight and underwater adventure. In 1926, Hugo Gernsback introduced the first magazine devoted entirely to science fiction, Amazing Stories, with the motto, Extravagant Fiction Today, Cold Fact Tomorrow. By mid-century, the Apollo moon missions were gasoline on the flames, as science conquered nature and optimistic populace yearned to live in the perfect tomorrow. Yet today, zeppelins the size of ocean liners do not hover over fully enclosed skyscraper cities. Shiny robot servants do not cook breakfast for the colonists on the moon. Worst of all, sleek titanium jetpacks are not ready and waiting on showroom floors. Every vivid drawing on the cover of a pulp sci-fi magazine was a promise of a better tomorrow, and the purpose of this book is to deliver on those promises. This book ruthlessly exposes technology, spotlighting existing prototypes and revealing drawing board plans. You will learn which technologies are already available, who made them, and where to find them. If the technology is not public, you'll learn how to build, buy, or steal it. When the technology of yesterday's tomorrow does not yet exist, you will learn what barriers stand in the way of making it real. Be careful. You're holding a hand-sized powder keg of information. Let's face it, there are myriad ways in which futuristic technology could cause personal injury, societal instability, or explosive decompression. A person would have to be crazier than a trainload of monkeys to want to unleash all this technology at once. Nevertheless, this book solemnly pledges to completely ignore any potentially catastrophic consequences of worldwide technology adoption. If the technology is possible, even remotely so, this book will lay it out for all to see. Despite every World's Fair prediction, every futuristic ride at Disneyland, and the advertisements on the last page of every comic book ever written, we are not living in a techno-utopia. Not yet. Now is the time to stop wishing, to stand up, and to shout, Where the hell is my jetpack? Daniel Wilson's first book about our perceptions of the future was How to Survive a Robot Uprising, Tips on Defending Yourself Against the Upcoming Rebellion. His new book is Where's My Jetpack? A Guide to the Amazing Science Fiction Future That Never Arrived. Welcome to the program, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Daniel, this is a really great book, and it's a very interesting literary artifact to me. It's part science fiction, part cultural history, part technological history history, part how-to. I'm wondering how you view it as a, as a writer. To me, I just, I just went through and 
enumerated all the technologies that I wish that I had had as a kid. And a lot of those were technologies that, you know, you actually I was fatally optimistic probably <laughs> in wishing for these. Uh, and it's probably a really good thing I never got them. But at a certain time uh, of my life, I looked and I said, wait a minute, where is all this stuff? And so I, I just went looking for it. And what I found was that although I was I was driven to go out and look for these things because of their cultural impact. But what I found was a lot of what I actually found was a lot of technology out there that I was able to explore and really talk about. One of the things that really interests me about this book is the relationship of science fiction's vision of the future to predictions of the future, to the present that we are living in, which was the future for much of the science fiction that both of us read as kids. I remember when the movie 2001 was coming out, I was cutting out all the pictures they had in Life magazine, <clears throat> and I make all sorts of little notebooks, and I said, boy, this is this is where I'm going to be in, in 30 years. And, 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 yeah, you weren't the only one. <laughs> Pan Am, the airline company, managed to get their, their airplane logo on the uh, ships in Space Odyssey 2001. And they actually were, for a short time, selling trips to the moon, you know, speculative trips to the moon. I think they sold 68,000 tickets. Wow. <laughs> or maybe not sold, took reservations for. Let me change. They weren't scamming people. <laughs> I'm sure you could buy a trip to the moon if you wanted right now. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about this idea, an idea of, of information versus uh, vision. A lot of this book is about visions of the future or, or visions of what we would expect to exist in the present. And a lot of it is information about what's actually here. And I'm wondering for you, you're a scientist, a computer scientist. You, you actually work on one of the, uh, when last we spoke, you, talk, you spoke that you were working about on smart houses. Mm -hmm. And you, that's a subject that comes up in this book. Mm -hmm. So how do you as a scientist reconcile what science fiction writers, what was going on in their brains back then with what is happening on the world right now? Well, so obviously there's a huge disparity between what people predicted and what people wanted even and what actually happened. And I think the way I see it, what happens is science fiction writers throw a lot of stuff out there and a lot of it's just forgotten. A lot of wild ideas just go by the wayside. But a few of them are really picked up and they capture the public imagination and people really want them to happen and they become archetypes. So a jetpack is obviously everybody knows what that is. You know, it's, it's a great idea. The problem is that a lot of times these things are much more sexy than they are practical. And so and also a lot of times these things fail to scale. So it's something that on an individual basis you would really love to have but you really would not want your neighbor and your neighbor's neighbor all the way down the block to also have this. If you're the only guy in the world with a jetpack or the only guy or, or gal with, with x-ray specs, that's pretty cool, but it just totally falls apart as soon as everybody gets one. And so what you see, though, is that people still go toward those goals. Scientists still go toward those goals, and they end up getting subverted usually into practical applications. And so... For instance, X-ray specs have appeared as backscatter machines that are in use at airports to basically detect uh, weapons that people might be trying to carry onto airplanes. One thing that really interests me is the the disparity between the the vision of the future. For example, you, you talked about the jetpack. Just visually, that guy with the jetpack is really exciting looking. I mean, the the image of that guy flying around is great, but 
what happens is when these things start to be thought out, as you say, they prove to be either impossible, mm-hmm. I mean physically impossible, just the, it's something that doesn't even make sense once you start analyzing the desire or the image, or they turn out to be impractical, or they turn out to be kind of useless. <laughs> as <laughs> well, so, so the impractical and useless, I would group those together on the same scale. So these things range from... You know, sometimes they're very practical for the time. You know, a Zeppelin was a good idea until better technology came along. Um, and, the, and then they range all the way to impractical. But I would actually argue with you that I don't think any of these technologies were impossible. So, for instance, you have a universal translator from Star Trek, right? This is something that Captain Kirk waves at an alien, and then it reads the alien's brain waves. So that's obviously impossible. I mean, you can't... Well, it seems obvious to us. Gosh. So... It seems obviously impossible that you could read brainwaves, but instead there are universal translators that just do speech recognition on one language and then convert it to another language and then use speech synthesis to say it out loud. And it's sort of a practical example of something that in its basic form would be impossible because it's, you know, I don't even know if there are brainwaves. <laughs> if they are, they're probably going to be named after some guy with a complicated last name, you know, <laughs> in the next 10 or 20 years. So do you, do you see what I mean? Yeah, but, well, as I said, I mean, it is, when we see it, the, the translator seems, makes, on one hand, it makes perfect sense, but on the other hand, brainwaves, and they're not possible, and we're not, we're not scanning those. That's, that's mm-hmm. what really interests me, is this, this uh, uh, tension between what's practical and, and what's buildable, and also the way sometimes, as you said, these ideas get subverted. Back to the translator, I want to talk about that because mm-hmm. I, I like one of the things that you do in this book is bring up a lot of really interesting, meaty science fiction style ideas, and you give them a, a kind of exposure as a writer that's um, uh, metafictional in a way that you know you talk, you discuss what we can do, some of the technologies. And one of the ideas behind the translator I really liked is the idea of the interlingua lingua. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that idea. So the talking about the universal translator was a great excuse to talk about some of my robotics buddies' work, you know. And you'll notice that a lot of these things in in the book actually eventually do tie into robotics because that's where I'm rooted. Uh, so the interlingua is a really great idea. The idea of a universal translator, like I said, is to have a machine that can do three things. It can understand speech in some language and convert that to text. And then it can convert that sentence into another language, and then it can say that out loud in the other language. The problem is that there are about 6,000 languages in the world, and if you work out a translation scheme from each to every other one, that just comes out to 36 million different translation schemes, which is really impractical. So there is this really interesting idea to create an interlingua, which is sort of this mythical super language that encompasses all other languages. So now you just have to translate each of those 6,000 languages to the interlingua, and then from the interlingua to any of the other 6,000 languages, and you've got only 12,000 translation schemes there. And so, uh, you know, the hard part, obviously, now becomes creating, you know, this language of the gods, right, that can encompass all other languages. So, But it's a problem that they're working on. Tell us a little bit about who's working on it. Uh, so the people that I know that are working on this are at Carnegie Mellon University, where I went to school, and they actually started working on... It's Alex Weibel's group. I think they're called the Interactive Systems Lab, the ISL. And what they originally they originally caught my attention because they had a camcorder that actually would 
look at a scene. Let's say you took it to Japan and you're an American and you're in Japan you're with your camcorder and you hold it up and it can actually pull out the signs, the shapes of a, of a street sign. And then it pulls the text off of that and then it translates it for you so that you, as you look around, you're seeing this real-time translated world <laughs> into your own language. This exists now? Uh, in prototype form, yeah, this does exist. Um, wow. The idea, though, obviously, is to to put this onto a pair of glasses. And and the first thing that, well, obviously these guys, you know, you mentioned that, that I'll talk about the technology in the prototype form, and then I'll talk about everything that it could do or, or everything that it's supposed to do in a year. And it's really hard to separate those two things because when you're talking to a scientist about his project or her project, they don't just see the prototype, you know, they see everything that's coming in the future and all the things that they're excited about, and they're kind of inextricably linked. And the most exciting thing that I saw from this particular device was that if you wore it as a pair of sunglasses, let's say, and it was filtering uh, what you saw, it could actually notice billboard-like shapes and then just get rid of the advertisements. So you can imagine living in a, a world with no advertisements because this thing scans them and learns to recognize them and then just removes them from your field of view. So forget translation. You know, I just want, uh, I just want something to stand between me and, and McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of like the inverse of the magic sunglasses in uh, They Live that show you the, the hidden messages. Right, right. We have a lot of people out there who are trying to predict the future right now, and they're, they're trying to do it in different ways. There are futurologists like, uh, for example, Faith B. Popcorn. And these are people who are essentially trying to follow trends and extrapolate them. And I'm wondering how you feel about that as a scientist, that, those, that kind of predicting the future. Yeah, I'm kind of ambivalent to that. I I don't want to say anything negative, you know, but I'm not sure exactly how you can separate predicting the future and, and making the future come true. I mean, I noticed that, and, and, and futurologists will say this up front, they'll say, we're predicting things that we want to happen, you know, and so then it becomes a science all unto itself, and it's really hard to to separate what the real goal is for the futurologist. And in fact, in this book, I kind of sidestepped that whole issue and, you know, with my disclaimer <laughs> in terms of I decided to go at this with childlike optimism. <laughs> so it was the same optimism that made me believe that I could really buy plans from the back of a comic book and build my own hoverboard. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, at a certain point, you realize that the hoverboard is made from a vacuum cleaner and it has to be plugged into the wall. <laughs> you know, it's just going to be really loud and it's going to only move a few feet. But, you know, I tried to put the blinders on to that and just say, look, here's the technology. Uh, here's what it's designed to do in, in your glorious future and not really make any predictions and get into practical applications or <laughs> potential catastrophes, things like that. As science fiction creates these visions that, that capture us, people actually do go out and try to, to bring them to life. Well, as, as Philo Farnsworth showed, everybody has their own imagination of what the future is going to be like. And, you know, RCA and Philo had different ideas, you know. And uh, what, what, what are their differences? Well, I think... RCA was looking to capitalize off of off of television um, in a way that that I don't know if Philo shared that. Although maybe <laughs> maybe they just cashed in before Philo could. But you know, in the book I talk about actually an example of this is space mirrors. So this is 
a technology that is basically a giant mirror. It's really razor thin and it floats in space. And it's got several different applications depending on how you look at it. Uh, if you have a really optimistic view of the future, then this is a mirror that can shine, reflect the sun's light into dark places of, on the earth in order to aid in rescue efforts or to keep crops, uh, you know, at optimal health to feed everyone on the planet, um, to, cr to change the climate, you know, to make the climate perfect. Alternately, you can imagine it as kind of a, oh, you know, or it can be pr propulsion for, for spacecraft, right? The, the majestic solar sails like you see in Planet of the Apes and things like that in the book anyway. Uh, or alternately, obviously, you can use this thing to set cities on fire and as warfare and to illuminate battle zones and things like that to aid your troops. And, you know, uh, I'm not sure, I think it was in the, uh, well, it was right around the Vietnam War when... Uh, both Russia and the United States had space mirrors uh, programs. And I think, I imagine that they had really, I mean, these were NASA programs. They were not, I don't, they were not warfare as, uh, based as far as I know, uh, in the United States anyway. And when it came time to actually launch these, these research projects into space, real space mirrors, uh, there was a huge international outcry because the popular imagination was a lot different than whichever researchers had concocted uh, these these research uh, these vessels, and so the United States program was nixed. Uh, but the Russians actually sent up a space mirror that, for about five minutes, uh, illuminated a two-mile swath of Europe in the middle of the night. It was about as bright as the moon, I think, which. You know, for just a moment in time, there was a space mirror up there <laughs> doing its job. It's, it's kind of a, it's kind of an amazing thing to even imagine, and frightening too. Actually, I, as I guess I fall on the paranoid side of the <laughs> equation, okay. seems fairly scary to me. This book is is very funny, and, and you have a really great voice in it. The, the way it's it's written, we can kind of hear you telling us the stories. Tell us a little bit about creating the humor in this book. Well, I basically, like I said earlier, I took sort of a childlike optimism. <laughs> that's that's the approach I started with. Uh, and it kind of evolved into an outraged sense of entitlement. <laughs> I deserve this technology. Where is it, you know? And, and so, you know, I feel like my voice in the book is a little bit angry. You know, I'm kind of saying you know, where is this stuff? And, okay, they have it, but, you know, oh, we can teleport stuff, but only one photon at a time? Why? <laughs> that's not good enough. <laughs> Let me put my hand in there. So um, so that's kind of the voice that I adopted uh, in the book. Tell us a little bit about how science fiction informs your your visions here. I, do, you, I, do you read a lot of science fiction? Yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> In fact, a lot of the stuff that you recommend I read. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Who are your favorites out there right now? Uh, well, so I just so I just read the, the, the Dragon books by Naomi Novik, and oh. I really enjoyed those. Those are fantasy, I, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I recently read East Perdido, Perdido Street Station, the China Mayville, don't know how to pronounce his last Mayville. name. Mayville book, yeah. which I really enjoyed. I like the... Uh, I really like... Where when fantasy and science fiction get all mixed up, and there are robots and demons and monsters and just everything thrown into the mix, you know, the, like the Philip Pullman books. So, uh, so those are some of the things I've been reading fairly recently. Let's talk a little bit about some of the the specific technologies in your book, which are are really great. Uh, of course, the jetpack. We'll we'll start there. I 
I never knew there was actually like one person who was responsible for the real jetpack. Yeah, Wendell Moore is the father of the jetpack. The jetpack, in my view, is sort of an answer to a problem that's not there. And so there's no real... It seemed interesting at some point, and so the Army gave this guy a, a, a grant. He was working at Bell Aerospace Systems, uh, and he built a jetpack. It was basically, the technology was really similar to some of the rocket thrusters that are on the wingtips of aircraft that fly really, really high where there's not a lot of traditional aerodynamics. You know, there's no air to push off of. Mm -hmm. So these things can push the uh, aircraft around. And so we just took something very similar to that and put it on his back and and lit it up, you know, and, and uh, with a tether. But he's very scientific about it. You know, it's all well, really well documented how many tethered runs he had, how long the the fuel lasted. He finally did an untethered run. He eventually actually shattered his knee and he never decided to use the jetpack again. But what happened, though, was that they eventually the final product was not satisfactory. It wasn't useful for anything uh, that the military wanted to do with it. Although, you know, you know, like I say in the book, apparently inspiring childlike awe is not a uh, <laughs> is not g good enough, you know, to keep funding something like this. So the funding was cut uh, in the early 60s. And there were a few prototypes made. A couple of them were broken down and put into other flying machines. One of them, actually, Wendell Moore hired his, his next-door neighbor who mowed his lawn, a guy named Bill Souter, to, to start flying this thing. You know, he's a healthy 18-year-old male, you know, the crew cut. It was the 60s. <laughs> they stuck him in there, and he actually became a, a really good pilot. He actually got a hold of one, and he flew it in the James Bond movies, not the Olympics and things like that. I'm pretty sure I'm right there. <laughs> there was never any other concerted research effort with, uh, you know, he had, Wendell Moore had, he was a scientist with a team on his side. He had the resources, he had all the equipment that he needed. He was working at an, at an aerospace company. He had everything you need to build an, a jetpack and he did it in a, just a few months, really. And that just goes to show if you, if you have those resources, you can build a jetpack in no time. And in fact, in, in 69, he got another grant and he built a what is t a, a real jet pack. The other thing is technically a rocket pack. It's a, it's a, just a, you know, it's hydrogen peroxide forced across a, a silver catalyst uh, by a bursts of nitrogen. And when that reacts, it just creates a controlled explosion that shoots out the bottom. Um, in fact, you don't even start the jet pack, right? There's no ignition button. You just pull the trigger, <laughs> and it's just like filling up a balloon, you know? Whenever you pull the trigger on top of one of those balloon things, all the, all the air escapes into the balloon, and then you, you know, tie it off and let it go. Well, that's all you're doing. You're just pulling a trigger, and it's just forcing those, those uh, ingredients together, and it goes until it runs out of fuel. The, the jet belt that he made in the 69 flew for 30 minutes, but again, it was not useful. And so uh, it was scrapped and he had it, he actually had a heart attack and passed away. And that was that. Since then, everyone's just been a loner. You know, there haven't been any concerted efforts with lots of money behind them. Uh, and so what you see are a lot of copies of the original jetpack with its very, you know, expensive fuel and 30 second flight time, which is the real, <laughs> That's the real kick in the nuts. It's just 30 seconds. You know, here you go. You can have your dream of flight 30 seconds. <laughs> That's all you get. One of the other most uh, precious technologies to me and many other people is the flying car. Mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> so tell us a little bit about And again, one of the great things about this book is it shows the real history of the flying car. Ford built one. Yeah, 1928. Henry Ford builds builds the Sky Fliver, <laughs> which is an, that's an awesome word. Someone should bring that back. And yeah, it flew and it also killed a guy. So that was it. The production was nixed. And I think they realized pretty early on that this is a technology that doesn't scale very well. It's arguable that automobile scale, considering how many people get killed in, in car wrecks every year. Now, recently, obviously anybody can get a, li- a pilot's license and, and fly their own plane. It's pretty expensive. Um, but it's getting it's obviously gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over the years. And now we're finally at a point where NASA had a study uh, with the small aircraft transportation something sats yeah <laughs> and uh, they were working on the two main problems that that keep sk- flying cars from scaling up and those are the fact that regular people can't fly complicated airplanes because they'll wreck them and the fact that if you have thousands of people in f- flying cars together they're going to wreck into each other so they worked on really simple joysticks that people could use to fly to fly cars in a, in a really intuitive way and they worked on these ground-based control systems so that the most of the traffic would actually be coordinated from the ground and people wouldn't actually have to do that much flying ideally and i suppose that's how you would maintain those neat uh you know fifth element <laughs> world's fair prediction skylines you know or sort of like futurama where you know all the cars are in a line in the sky which would never happen if my grandma was driving you know which she would be if this went on, went off the way it should and so the real the real challenge there is not actually building the flying car, uh, although there are some flying car prototypes that are really pretty to look at. Uh, Paul Moeller has his sky car that is it's beautiful. Yeah, it's a vertical takeoff. It, it, the, it's kind of like a Harrier jet, you know, the ducted fans. Uh, they're encased in really torpedo-like cherry red encasements, and they flip up, and the thing shoots off the ground. And of course, I don't. Yeah, you can. They were in the in the two thousand five Neiman Marcus catalog, but I don't really think they that those things have been test flights have <laughs> shown uh, success in test flights, which is kind of frightening. <laughs> One thing that that I I really liked, of course, is the underwater hotel. Now, I was a fan of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea when I was a kid. I could not be distracted from that, and, and <clears throat> I really. But now I actually went. It, there is an uh, underwater hotel now, isn't there? Right, yeah. So the, the Jules, Jules Verne Undersea Lodge off the coast of Key Largo in Florida. It's actually, so in the 60s and 70s, there was a huge, there was a huge craze to colonize the sea. A lot of countries, Canada, United States, Russia, Europe, all suddenly realized 70% of the planet has gone unclaimed, you know. So they decided, gosh, we've got to get out there and, and start colonizing the sea and staking our claim to it. Uh, and so around 60 underwater habitats were built. Uh, you know, the sea labs were, were really familiar to a lot of people. Ultimately, it was too hard. <laughs> it's just too much money and too much danger to, to maintain these uh, underwater habitats. And so one of them was actually left behind. And it was called originally La Chalupa, which I think sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this one, I guess, was eventually purchased by the people that run this hotel and so it's just uh, it's an H-shaped habitat that's on stilts on the bottom of the ocean. And it's got a, a, a line, a hose, that runs air and water down to it. 
and you can actually pay a few hundred dollars and go uh, go stay there. Sadly, I was not able to, <laughs> but uh, I read reports of people who had, and they said it was like uh, sleeping in a sunken RV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I, again that that's one of the interesting aspects of this book is that we dream of being underwater, and it sounds so cool, but when you actually get there, it's like as you say, it's like being stuck in a tiny windowless room, <laughs> you might as well just go on a cruise and not worry about accidentally being drowned unless you fall off. Yeah. Well, you know, there's the spirit of uh, of exploration, you know, and feeling like, I don't know what it is, but you know, people are always driven to explore alien environments. You know, it's always something, you know, space travel, underwater travel, going into the, to the center of the earth, going to the, you know, the, the bathysphere and, you know, and the hot air balloons or like, like Picard, you know. These uh these things capture our imagination. So, uh, you know, it's, it seems to me to be a basic component of being human. One prediction of the future that has actually come true and proved to be uh, fairly robust and profitable are the robot pets. Yeah, how about that, huh? That just <laughs> kind of recently happened. And you know, even the even the pe- the robots that are not pets, the ones that are. Uh, vacuuming floors, they become pets <laughs> just as soon as you put them down and uh, they start going the wrong way and you start shouting at them. You know? <laughs> I guess that's true. Tell us a little bit about the various, the varieties of, of robot pets that you can get. So, okay, there, actually, I just got back from Carnegie Mellon and they have a toy initiative there because the Robotics really? Institute's, uh, the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon actually found out that a lot of these really complicated, you know, they'll have a prototype that costs 50 grand or, or 250 grand. And they realize that if you just make it really simple, figure out a way to power the whole thing with one motor, you have a really, really great toy, you know? <laughs> so let's say it's designed to, it's a chopper designed to form a 3D map of the Amazon basin, you know? Wait, <laughs> can't we just make this the size of a hummingbird? And, you know, <laughs> it's really fun. So, I may have strayed a little bit from your question, but I was just going to talk about uh, a project I just saw, which is there is something called R-Hex or, or Rex, and it's, it's a hexapod um, that it's basically this, this robot. It's a mobile robot the size of a shoebox, and it's got six legs that kind of stick off, and they're s- curved like semicircle, and they're springy. And so what it does is it's designed to like cockroach to go over anything really fast. And it's, I think it was originally developed on military money. So when you hit the joystick and whack this thing and make it go forward, the legs just, they're made of, uh, gee, I don't know, like titanium or something. They spin really fast and the thing just throws up dirt clods and just flies over any type of terrain. And uh, some recently some colleagues of mine uh, at CMU took this thing, simplified it, and they realized actually one day when they were out there, they were out there on the field showing off all the robots, there were all the researchers came and uh, there was some media there and everybody brought their kids. And there was this sort of an unforeseen circumstance, but all the kids kind of gathered around this thing because its legs are springy. So when it walks slow, instead of when it's going apey and just tearing across the place, when it walks really slow, 
it bounces and it looks like a cartoon character. And the kids are chasing it and running up and touching it and running away and throwing sticks at it. And the girls are screaming (laughs) and the boys are trying to race it or, I mean, climb on top of it. It was amazing to watch them interact with this thing because it looked like a living entity. And that's what's key, right? As robots start to look more and more like real things, uh, they're, they're really enticing. And so this has been converted into a, into a, uh, a toy. And it's, it's going to be coming out uh, this year. It's called, geez, Hexapet. Yeah. <laughs> and it's been catered toward boys. It looks like a, a weird snake monster, you know, with these six legs. And it's made of shiny, hard plastic. Um, yeah. So, but if you want, I can, you can clue me in and I will get back on topic there. <laughs> no, you, you, okay. you did exactly <laughs> fine. It's, it, I find this very interesting. The other use for, for robots we find, and this, I, again, it's kind of surprising, toys and also for the old people to help take care of the aged, both robot pets and, and some of the uh, robot, the actual house robots. Yeah, recently someone asked me, aren't you worried that people are going to be, you know, falling in love with robots? And I think they were asking me in kind of a non-platonic sense, but <laughs> the first thing I thought of uh, was, you know, the like the Paro robot, or Paro, I don't know how you pronounce it. It's this Japanese robot that looks exactly like a baby harp seal, and it's been around for a few years. It's very fuzzy and white and hypoallergenic, and it has big eyes that are far apart. And it's you, it's been shown in, in clinical trials to uh, lower blood pressure, increase reported levels of happiness, increase social uh, interaction in these elder populations of, of elderly Japanese. Uh, it's questionable whether it would, there are cultural, uh, you know, there, there are cultural, uh, impacts. So, you know, that may not translate to, to the United States necessarily, or not, maybe not the same way, but these robots have shown that when people love them, when people, you know, see them and they fall in love and they ooh and ah, that there are really positive outcomes from that. And I think part of that is just that whenever you are, so so this is my personal research area, is in using uh, smart house technology to help elderly people live independently. And so a lot of times what I found in my research is that if you're elderly or if you have physical disabilities and you're living, let's say, at home, alone, or you don't have a lot of social interaction, or the only social interaction you do have is people that are taking care of you, uh, a lot of times you feel very disempowered. You have no control over anything, and it's really it's really uh, depressing to people. And so as soon as you give them anything to take care of, whether it's an actual animal or a plant or a robot animal, then uh, it just it really turns it around for people. I mean, for real. I mean, even it hits whatever button that is that we've got. And, and whether it's a real animal or not doesn't seem to matter, you know. So, so that's, I think it's a good thing. I, I was really um, interested as well in in invisibility because we've always seen invisibility it's always been portrayed to us as kind of like making us transparent mm-hmm. uh, so that light essentially goes through us that's the invisible man he has to wrap himself in cloth or you know and you talked about harry potter he wears his invisible cloak and you see through him but invisibility is taking a different trend and it's actually out of philip k dick was the first place i read mm-hmm. about it in the scanner darkly Tell us about this adaptive camouflage. Okay, so a lot of these technologies seem like magic, 
you know, the stuff that's just too far, <laughs> you just have to say that's magic. And, and this is where I think invisibility has been for a long time. The adaptive camouflage, though, is really just the logical conclusion of regular camouflage. And it's a it's a military funded. Uh, I think DARPA is funding this, this research. Regular camouflage, basically, you blend into your background. Animals have been evolving to do this forever, right? Um, so you have a lizard who looks exactly like, um, who has a pattern that makes it look like dead leaves, right? Well, if you look to a place where animals have been evolving longer than they have been up here on land in the ocean, you see, I don't know if you've ever seen some of these YouTube videos of, of octopus that look exactly, exactly like a coral reef. They are actually, their, their skin pigment changes. So they have millions of tiny little, you know, cells, I guess, that are changing color. And they're changing color to actually reproduce something uh, so they look like a rock or something like that. Well, just imagine that, except instead of changing color to mat to be something completely new, you just uh, change color so that your front looks like what a person would see if they were looking through you. So the simplest way to do this is if you just take your webcam, if you've got a webcam that's separate from your computer monitor, and you stand in front of your computer monitor so that maybe your stomach is behind the computer monitor, and then you aim the webcam directly behind you. Maybe you hold it in the small of your back and aim it behind you. And then what the webcam is showing is the view directly behind your stomach. And then when someone looks at the monitor, they see the view of directly behind your stomach, right? So they see through you, essentially. And the idea is to do this, but for every angle and from every vantage point that a person could look at you. Uh, and you need a lot of cameras and a lot of processing power and a lot of very flexible uh, uh, display material. And and you can and this can actually happen. Um, there's been kind of a parlor trick demonstration by some researchers in Japan that was really popular on the internet for a while, where a guy wore a raincoat made out of lenticular screen, which is just uh, like actually it was just projector material, the same thing that a movie screen would be made out of. And he wore this big droopy raincoat, and behind him he had a camera pointing behind. And then in front, he had a, a friend with a projector that projected the scene behind him on to his front. And he's kind of a ghost-like image, and you can see through him, right? Uh, and it's pretty weird, and, and it instantly you instantly get it, you know, because it's kind of hard, actually, to explain this. <laughs> I hope that you're following, everybody's following. I, I want to talk, too, about the variety of mind-reading devices out there. We, it, we think of mind-reading, and it seems... You know, it's psychic. It's, you know, stuff that you don't really believe in. But we've had these kind of primitive and broken mind-reading devices for a while in lie detectors. Yeah, so this was another great opportunity for me to talk about robotics research. So you think mind-reading, right? Yeah, that's, what is that? That's impossible. Uh, on the easiest, uh, well, on the topmost layer, if you think about mind-reading, really a lot of times what you're trying to do is just, something binary. You're just trying to determine whether a person's lying or not. And so with lie detection, with advanced lie detection systems, they use things like infrared cameras, which can see the blood flow. They see heat, so they see the blood flowing underneath your skin of your face. And researchers have found that when you're lying, you actually have an uncontrollable fight or flight response. And it may be really subtle, but what happens is the blood flows to your eyeballs and it flows into your face in a certain pattern. Um, because you're getting more blood to the places that you need in order to run away from, you know, a saber-toothed tiger or something. Uh, 
And so what happens is they can image this with a camera and they can reliably detect over multiple people what they call the face of fear, which is when blood flows into a certain pattern around the eyes. And they know you're lying uh, because you're because it's eliciting this response. But going deeper than that, um, the brain is full of neurons and the neurons are communicating with each other uh, through electricity. And if you monitor that electrical activity, you can figure out what people are thinking. And we're learning, neuroscientists are learning more and more about the brain. So again, this has a really practical application. Uh, this area of research is called brain-computer interfaces. So the idea is that you want to interface a computer just directly to the brain, and the computer has to be able to make sense of what you're thinking in order to carry out its goals. And in the most practical application, its goal is to help a person who's um, not able to move a limb or maybe who's got some other really serious physical disability to help them move a computer cursor on a screen or move a robotic arm or, uh, or do anything in the real world. And so this can be non-invasive where you just wear an electro-studded skull cap that sits on your head and picks up electrical activity through your skull. Or it can be invasive where they where a, a scientist cuts a hole in your in your skull and they place an electrode uh, or a lot of electrodes actually a matrix of really thin wires right into the surface of your brain and it doesn't actually hurt because uh, I asked a friend about another friend at Carnegie Mellon <laughs> about this uh, the whole process you know and you don't have any nerves on your brain so there's a local anesthetic you know kind of like you get in your gum from the doctor uh, from the the dentist and they just put a local anesthetic into your the uh, the skin of your head and just cut you open and put this in there. And the computer uses machine learning, actually, to figure out what corresponds to what. And after some training period, it can reliably figure out what you're doing. And they also are smart about where they put the electrodes. So if they're looking, uh, if you want to think about moving your arm and instead you move a computer cursor, they'll put that in your motor cortex um, or someplace that makes sense. So they're picking up where they think the activity is going to be. But those BCIs are already being turned into computer game interfaces, I saw. Really? Yeah. Not uh, a surprise, I yeah, guess. Yeah, there are two companies. I can't remember where I read about this. One company has a really complicated one. These are all non-invasive. It's not like a home surgery <laughs> kit, right? It's like, I want to play Halo 5. Somebody give me some local anesthetic. You know? <laughs> Trepanation nation. <laughs> yeah, just jam it in. <laughs> yeah, uh, although that might be fun. You know, who knows what will happen. <laughs> but... Uh, but yeah, so this stuff is already on the market, you know, and it's it's really interesting. That was one of my favorite sections. And of course, the smart house. This is this is your your home base, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about what you've been doing on smart houses that we can buy. Are are you working <laughs> on stuff we can buy yet? So I'm still no, I'm just doing research. There is stuff that you can buy. The let's see, I forget the name of the security company, but it's one of the big ones. ADT. Yeah. Okay. It's ADT. So some of they're starting to offer pr services where they've already got this infrastructure installed in people's houses. So things like motion detectors and contact switches that that detect when windows open and close or when doors open and close. Um, sometimes pressure mats to determine where people are at in a home. And a lot of this stuff is not outside of your house facing outward, you know, like the castle walls. A lot of this stuff is is facing inside the house. You know, it's actually for years been underutilized, I think, because these sensors can be used to detect what people are doing and whether they're okay. You know, if someone goes into the bathroom and stays there for four hours or or eight hours or something like that, you may have a problem, you know. 
Um, so, you know, just, I mean, on that basic level, on that, just that simple, simple level, I mean, that's a useful service to know if someone is just not moving or to know if someone left and didn't come back or there's all kinds of things you can figure out with arbitrarily complicated AI, which is what I spent five years doing because the sensors are really simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to use, you have to have, the computer has to be smart. The sensors are going to be dumb. So you're not going to use smart sensors like a camera or something that's going to track somebody because that's going to freak people out. <laughs> they don't want that in their house. So ADT, for instance, you can buy services now that are going to look inward instead of looking outward for burglars. The, another in, uh, interesting thing to point out about this the whole smart house industry when it comes to elder care technology is that in the past, and I think that this is pretty much a pervasive feeling, when you think about smart homes, it's like it's handing you a beer, you know? The smart house is 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 doing stuff for you. It is catering to you, to the user, you know? It is sort of, you are the king of this smart house, and it is uh, servicing your every whim. And that's really not the direction that it's going anymore. It's not total control over your house. I want to be able to turn off the lights from the internet, you know? It's really more about connecting people together um, and, uh, and having the the computing infrastructure sort of disappear. And that's why it's called a lot of times ubiquitous computing. It's just ubiquitous. It's in the air. You don't see it or interact with it. So this is situations where you can check up on your friends or you can walk into your kitchen and there's a video screen that has a live real-time feed of your friend's kitchen. And so you wake up in the morning and say hi to each other. Or maybe you don't notice the other person a few days in a row and you check up on them. So stuff like that. I will talk about that all day, by the way. <laughs> now, is a, one of, this was one of the big promises of Bluetooth technology was you'd walk into the room and, and the blue, your little Bluetooth tag would announce, oh, it's Rick and he wants, you know, he likes it warm, turn on the heater. <laughs> you know, he wants cold beer, crank up the, 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 the refrigerator. Is that stuff using Bluetooth technology yet? You know, I don't think Bluetooth really... So wireless technology, you know, uh, radios, mm-hmm. short-range radios are huge. I don't think Bluetooth is the specific protocol that's really being used mostly. Uh, it's all RFID. Oh, really? So, the uh, so for instance, research at Intel Research in Seattle that I collaborated on uh, a, probably a year ago. I'm sure they're still they're still going on this. Is you put an RFID reader. Uh, in a bracelet. They actually had a really stylish orthopedic (laughs) bracelet that, you know, the circular structure of the bracelet had an antenna and then it had a battery in it and it was actually a reader. So it's generating a field around your hand, a really small field. Mm -hmm. And anytime an RFID tag, which these are the same tags that, uh, you know, alert the cops that you're trying to get a CD out through the uh, through the antenna of, you know, of Best Buy or whatever, right? Uh-huh. So instead of those huge antennas, uh, you know, they've been shrunk to a bracelet. And every time you touch something that's got a tag in it, it's re- reported to a computer, and it becomes really easy to figure out what people are doing. And even down to the to the level of what they're cooking. And, and actually, a lot of the research I did was figuring out people's routines, because it's sad to say, but we are all very, very frighteningly predictable <laughs> in our own homes. I hate to say it, but it is a fact. Uh, I've got empirical evidence that I, in particular, am predictable. But what it does is you can actually build patterns of what people do over time, and then you can determine deviations. And you, you can see, you can actually spot functional decline. Uh, and determine when people need a little extra help in different areas like cooking. It's it's a very 
it's a very personal thing. Bathing, toileting, stuff like that, you know, it's, it's unavoidable. But uh, you know what? The baby boomers are all going to be going into retirement really soon, and it's going to be necessary. There are lots of different ways to predict the future. There's futurology, science fiction, psychics, talking, got those. <laughs> talking heads, uh, scientists, mathematicians and statisticians, uh, obviously, and, and comic books. Mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering how, which of those you think really impact people's imaginations most? Well, you know, in terms of mass media... I think movies really do it because people can see exactly what's happening, you know. Uh, and obviously science fiction novels, you know, just whenever you... And and it's not that there's one... I think with the movies, you tend to get an iconic image that sticks with people. And it's very visual, you know. So you're thinking of the gate that the Terminator had, you know, as he walked across humans, you know, a field of human skulls, right? Or or in Minority Report, there's a really uh, killer scene where Tom Cruise is uh, interacting with this holographic uh, display, and he's moving things around in the air. And that I see that clip in human-computer interaction uh, presentations all the time. People are really inspired by that because it's very visual. I think in science fiction... A lot of times you see the same themes popping up again and again, and uh, in, in that way it kind of trail it blazes a, uh, a path of what, you know, what the science fiction future looks like. Or, you know, sometimes they fall off into different worlds. So after enough novels come out, you've got a cyberpunk world, you know, and you've got, uh, you know, all these different types of, of, of worlds that you can think about. And so I would really have to say, you know, obviously books and movies, but you know, they really do inspire scientists. Every scientist has a pet, you know, uh, a pet image that they're trying to make come true. Um, me included. <laughs> Actually, I just, um, I just found out that my film agent represents the same guy who wrote uh, this book that inspired me whenever I was growing up. I read this book every year. And then uh, halfway through graduate school, I realized that my thesis work was was basically the exact technology that was constituted the main theme of this book, but um, but Which I won't book? I won't name the book because um, I really want to write a screenplay based on it. <laughs> so oh, you gotta tell us. Oh, I gosh, I really I shouldn't I can't do it. <laughs> I'm just teasing. You can cut that if you have to. <laughs> well, tell us about the screenplay that's being based on your book. So How to Survive a Robot Uprising was optioned by Paramount, which is great. And they immediately hired these two really funny guys, uh, Thomas Lennon and Ben Garant, and so to write a screenplay. These guys you might recognize because Tom is Lieutenant Dangle and Ben is Travis Jr. from Reno 911, right? So this is a Comedy Central show. It's a spoof of cops, and they recently had a movie. They're this really hilarious comedy duo and they wrote a screenplay well they actually have they write a lot of screenplays they just wrote night at the museum which was a really successful movie of course just before that they wrote let's go to prison which was not as successful so you know it's it's hit or miss but uh but i really liked it i got a chance to to check it out and it was really great and uh paramount actually signed with mike myers to star in the movie and so right now they are they're chugging along they're working it out still in pre-production. I just met with with, uh, the VP at Paramount, who's a really fantastic guy and like told me a lot of details that I'm forbidden to share. (laughs) But 
everything is going great. So I'm really looking forward to that. But not this year. You know, it's not going to happen this year. We've been speaking with Daniel Wilson. His new book is Where's My Jetpack? Thank you for joining me, Daniel. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.